Hey guys, it's Whitney. I wanted to take some time to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com. They're a national private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities. They do this with private accredited investor funds. They have a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and control over $250 million in equity from their investors. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easier for you to start investing in real estate without all the hassles. They even have an average 62% repeat investor rate in each offering they put together. They even have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to fix and flippers locally and across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. To help you learn more, they have put together a free passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download the PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. This is your daily real estate syndication show, and I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today is a highlight show that's packed with value from different guests around a specific topic. Don't forget to like and subscribe, but also go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up to start investing in real estate today. I hope you enjoy the show. Our guest is Anthony Griffin. Thanks for being on the show, Anthony. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Whitney. So why commercial real estate? Why not you know, do single family homes and small residential? I have done single family residential. And the reason why I don't do more of it anymore is that well, there's two reasons. One is your value for your property is only valued at what your house next door is worth. So being a home builder, I know that you can throw as much as you want into a home, but you still won't increase the value if the house next door isn't worth anymore. And a lot of single family investors end up starting out in the roughest areas to try and get a cheaper house but their property will never increase in value because the other properties are not worth much. Another reason why I like commercial and multifamily is that when you have one vacancy in a single family house, you get to foot all the bills every month. And that is painful. I've done it before. At least if it's more than one unit, you've got some cash flow from somebody else. It's very, very rare if you manage a property well that everybody moves out at the same time. Unless it's a value-add property and you're moving them so you can renovate. So what's your preference over, say, multifamily or office space like you've purchased? I am actually not buying any more office space for the simple fact that when it's really, really good, it's good. But it takes a long time to replace a tenant. Once they leave, especially with all of the WeWork spaces and people working at home, it gets a little bit harder to find somebody to fill an office space versus an apartment building with the economy being the way it is, there will always be people who rent. And I always tell my son who wants to be in the business also, as long as you keep your property safe and clean and manage it well, you will never have vacancies unless you just want them. So clean and safe. That's some good advice. And we take those like, well, that seems so simple, but we some of us still don't do it, right? You know? Yeah. Anything else like in the differences between residential and commercial and why you're sticking with you know, our multifamily now? Well, one thing about commercial, when I spoke to the value of a property being only worth what is your next door neighbor is and residential, that's only way they can appraise it is basically the other properties within a certain area. With commercial property, 
it's based as a multiple of what your net income is. So the first thing you do is you buy a property, you improve it, past what it is now so that you can increase the rents eventually. Well, the other part of that is save as much money as possible. If you've got a lot of dead expenses in a property, clean them out, get rid of them, and that makes your bottom line a little bit better. And that bottom line is a multiple of what the property ends up being worth. And that's what they call a cap rate. I think you've spoken to that on some of your posts. Oh, yeah, we have. We've talked about that a lot on the show, obviously. That's that's a great topic. But, you know, tell me, like, you know, now that you had the government job for that many years and then, you know, you've moved to this entrepreneurial field, you know, in, in commercial real estate. What do you tell people like your son, you know, for instance, or other people that are saying, you know, I want to get into real estate as well. What, you know, what path do you tell them to take? I tell them, look at at least two units. I rarely tell anybody, look at bigger than two or three units at a time to start because you've still got to learn how to manage tenants and tenants are an interesting bunch. You know, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. And it's almost like a three ring circus and you get to be the ringleader. You've got to know how to deal with people and their attitudes and personalities, and you still got to provide a good service. I have a lot of people that work with me in church, and we have a life group that's based around real estate. And a lot of guys either want to wholesale houses or they want to buy a single family rental. And I tell them all that that's a starter mentality. You can start like that and get your feet wet, but don't let that be the end all of your investing because once you get past five or six houses, and they're spread all over town. It becomes kind of a nightmare to manage them versus five or six sitting in one spot. How are you prepared for another downturn? We have recently liquidated a bunch of stuff we were involved in. And we're sitting on cash right now. Because just like 2008, I was a builder when 2008 came. And fortunately, I didn't get stuck with any inventory because we just lucked out purely. But I saw a lot of builders lose basically everything behind overbuilding and having a lot of inventory sitting on the ground. So we liquidated in the last year pretty much everything we were involved in except for two office properties. And we're sitting back looking for other opportunities to buy back in cheap. This next presidential election is going to be really interesting, to say the least. And we're waiting to see how the dust falls before we go back in really heavy. So how are you increasing deal flow now, or are you going to wait till after that? We're still looking at deal packages. A lot of areas outside of our area, we're in Mississippi, of course. So a lot of the hotter areas like Florida and Texas, they're becoming overheated as far as I'm concerned, as far as buying property. Whenever you see a listing package and there's no price on it to even start with, that's overheated. So what we're doing is we're looking at the Jackson Metro market, which is close to where we are. And there's a lot of dilapidated property that is C and sometimes D property that can be renovated. We're starting to look at those now because there's a lot of upside in those instead of going to the class A properties where you're basically hoping it's worth something more in the future than it is now. Awesome. So Anthony, what's a way you've recently improved your business that we could apply to ours? Cut as much debt as possible. I know a lot of people who turn a property every five years. Our basis for how we buy properties is if we buy them, we buy them to keep them 20 years. So we hope to never sell anything unless it becomes to a point of somebody wants it really, really much more than we do. And that's where we sold a lot of stuff lately because the market's hot and everybody wants to buy something. But my biggest advice would be know your numbers when you go in, buy cheaply as you can, and don't over leverage a property. You can almost never get from under one that's over leveraged. 
Happening on January 20th and 21st is Denver's biggest real estate event, the next big thing. And it's shaking up how real estate professionals will define business success. This two-day event will give you tools so you can catapult your own business. You'll discuss how the world is changing and what's needed to stay two steps ahead. Together with 450 other professionals, you will build a foundation to become the next big thing. Built on the foundation of helping others build wealth through real estate, the Ruth team has created the ultimate tool that is this event. And it's called the next big thing. 25 speakers, including Ryan Serhant, Kenyon Salo, Nebu Hata, Stacey Veden, Brian Moses, Natalie Davis, and Ryan Avery. Register now at thenextbigthingcolorado.com and use the code RESS to get $150 off. Our guest is Shane Melanson. Thanks for being on the show, Shane. Yeah, I'm excited to be here, Whitney. So now you are coaching people in the commercial real estate business, correct? Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, I would love to know some of the, the most common issues or you find in people getting started in this business. And I guess clarify as well, are your students going to be mostly in Canada or are they in the U.S. as well? It's a good question. I have client or co- clients, mentees, whatever the proper term is, in both Canada and the U.S. And really, I would say the fundamentals are very similar in the sense that I kind of break my coaching into kind of three pillars, finding the deals financing the deals. And then I call it fixing just so there's there's three Fs. But at the end of the day, it's really optimizing your deal. And so financing is certainly different from the US to Canada, but the principles are very similar. And so I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I oh, you asked kind of what are some of the questions or, yeah, or like challenges? The, like the have? biggest pain points that you see yeah. across, as I like to ask people who are mentoring numerous people, yeah. you know, just what are some of the common things that they, you know, have that are holding them back? And then, you know, how have you seen people break through that as well? Yeah, I would say there's a couple of things. Number one would be like just a belief that they can do it, right? I mean, I think that what happens is, especially a lot of investors will come from either real estate, like residential real estate investing, and then trying to break into commercial. And they just, they say like, shame. Like, and these are guys that have done a hundred deals to people that have never invested. And they're like, I, like, I want to do what you do, but I don't know how, like, where do I even start? And I think a lot of people have a fear of sounding stupid because if you've ever dealt with a commercial broker and I was one, so this isn't anything negative because they, they just have to be tough. Right. And they can come across very abrupt. And so I think what happens sometimes is it's not like when you phone up a residential realtor and residential realtor is kind of happy to take your call. And this is, I know I'm generalizing, but when you call up a commercial guy, like nine times out of 10, you don't get them. You might get kicked down to a junior person. They're going to qualify you immediately. So if you don't understand the language and the terminology, what happens is I think guys or girls that are kind of trying to break into it get scared out very quickly. And so one of the key things I do is I explain to them, like, who are the players? Like understanding the motivations of, of everybody involved is really important. And then once they have that kind of foundation of what's the game, what are the ter- what's the terminology, like just dropping in just some key terms. Like I, I had a client I'm working with where he started to sprinkle in some of the kind of key terms that I, I've taught him to use. And as soon as he did that, the agent on the other side really opened up and talked to him for 30 minutes. And he's like, I didn't understand anything you were saying because he started to kind of go. <laughs> and I said, well, that's okay. He trusts you and he, you know, and it is relationship. So now he thinks you guys are on the same board. 
I said, you're not going to learn this in three weeks, but now you can have conversations. He's going to start to send you deals. And so actually we had a, we looked at a deal that he's looking at right now. So I think that that, that's a really big, how do I find the properties? Well, you need to be able to talk to the brokers. Well, how do I talk to the brokers? So it's just kind of going back and back and all the way to the very beginning, which is you can do this. Here's what you need to understand. It is relationships. How do you leverage me to talk to some of these people or whoever your coach is for that matter? Oh, that's awesome. It is difficult, right? I mean, learning the lingo initially and being able to break through the, like you said, the, the belief that they can do it. And I hear that often. It's just so so much mindset. And like you said, somebody that's done 100 deals, even though if they're just single family, but then they want to get into commercial and they feel you know, like they don't even know where to start. It surprises me when that, like I run into people like that and I'm surprised. Like you've done this many deals. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand. I, I, I agree. You know? I agree. So, but anyway, no, it's great that you can help them get through that that tough time. Specifically for you, what's been the hardest part of the syndication journey? I think one of the, well, there's a couple of challenges. I would say the two challenges I run into are, and I would say that anybody that's really successful, like I see a ton of deal flow, but like, deals that really make sense, right? Because the type of deals I'm looking at right now, I used to get quite excited about five years ago or three years ago, but now I've 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 started to see just more lucrative opportunities. And so I like to see more and more of those. And so I like to see really asymmetric risk where, where I have high, high returns and very low risk. Uh, before you and I got on the phone or onto this call, I was sharing with you some of the industrial properties I'm looking at right now. And I feel that that as long as everything pans out, I think that that will have very asymmetric risk to the upside. But then the second part of that is, how do I get enough time from the vendor? And so in Calgary, our market is soft. I would say that's probably the best way to put it. We're very oil and gas centric. When oil went from whatever 110 a barrel down to 30 or 40, the market here, there was no fire sales. But what it did is it, it took a lot of investors out where I've got more time now to be able to... to do my due diligence and prevent any kind of loss or risk. <laughs> yeah. So well, that leads me right into, you know, I try to ask like, how are you preparing for this potential downturn that everybody's talking about? So what I've learned over the past couple of downturns, I mean, I'm not that old, but I've been in, I've been in the market since about 04. So I've seen a few uh, cycles. And then obviously my, my father-in-law, my mentor, he's been through many more. And so when we sit down and have conversations, and, and this is one of the probably one of the real advantages I have is to be able to kind of leverage someone that has 30 or 40 years experience. They've got a company that's been around for 90 years. And so we, we have these conversations and a few kind of principles come up and I've kind of put these into my non-negotiables, if you will. So preparing for quote unquote, this downturn, I'm looking at like, like prime location properties. And the reason for that is even in a soft market, you'll find that there's always a buyer for a property that's well-located. At least that's been my experience. I'm always scared to say like, you know, definitives because you can always find an example when, when, when you can't. But at least from, from my experience, really good locations, proper debt service coverage. So I'm always making sure that I've got enough equity that I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I'm going to have to cash call investors or run out of equity, if you will. So making sure you've got long-term leases, proper financing, and frankly, investors that are going to be with you, right? I would say the majority of the investors that come into my deals, they're not putting their last $10,000 into a deal. I mean, just the fact that my friend would have allowed my parents to refinance their house and put 100G into it, like I would never even allow an investor to do that in, in any of my deals. So I think that that's 
that's something else, right? When you've got really good backing, then you've got more confidence too. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the Real Estate Syndication Show. Please subscribe and like the show. Share it with your friends so we can help them as well. Don't forget, go to lifebridgecapital.com where you can sign up and start investing in real estate today. Have a blessed day. 